1: lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn on May 28th. Welcome to Dale Borglum's Healing at the Edge. We are very happy to share with you Dale's profound insight an open heart. Please go to com slash Dale to support this podcast. Last week we talked about compassion and we worked with compassion. In the meantime, there has been lots of opportunity for compassion in our not-united-states that we're living in. I cannot remember a time maybe since the Vietnam War when there was so much divisiveness in the country. I did get an email from one of the group members here who has not shown up yet, but she was saying that she has a very hard time feeling compassion for what's going on. She feels that what's going on in the White House is exacerbating everything. There is evil out in the world, and she cannot feel compassion. In fact, last week somebody asked the question, isn't forgiveness the same thing as compassion? And it certainly is very, very similar. One thing I'd like to begin talking about here is the fact that that compassion and forgiveness is really something we're doing for our own heart. It is not something we're doing for the other person. It's so easy to have compassion for the family of George Floyd. Can we have compassion for the police officer? Can we have compassion for Ann Cox, the woman whose life was ruined by getting mad at the black bird watcher in Central Park? When my brother was dying, he was told by Kaiser Oakland of his terminal prognosis in an after-hours email by the oncologist. It's easy to have compassion for my brother. Can we have compassion For the oncologist who didn't have the training or the ability to, in a face-to-face way, share that, that diagnosis. He had to do it in a way where he was protected. Compassion or forgiveness is really a state of being. And it's something that's healing our own heart. Last week, as many of you remember who were here last week, I used this line that I used to rile people up that when you're dying, Donald Trump will be at your bedside. And there was a woman in the group who was not here today and will not be back, I'm pretty certain, who said, that's not funny. I'm a Trump supporter. My point was, and I talked to her, and I even talked to her after the meeting, and she said, I'm not really mad at you so much as all those smug people in your group using adjectives like putrid and disgusting. Now, when people are saying things like that, clearly they're in a lot of pain. And is it possible then for us to go into a place where our heart is open, where being called putrid by somebody else, or seeing what's going on in Minneapolis, or Atlanta, or Washington DC, or your own household, is it possible to open up to those events and not automatically and unconsciously have your heart closed down. When a difficult emotion arises, or even a pleasant emotion, there are three possibilities. One is push it away, I don't want to feel that, like my brother's oncologist. The second one is getting lost in it. Oh my God, this is a catastrophe, look at those horrible people, look what they're doing, how can... How can the protesters be doing that? How can the police be doing that? How can the government be doing that? Whichever group you choose to demonize, you close your heart to that group and then inside of your protected concepts feel some sense of safety and self-righteousness that allows the heart to remain partly closed. The third possibility is forgiveness and compassion. It does in no way at all imply liking what the other person is doing wanting to be around the other person it uh, doesn't imply not protesting and trying to change the other person's behavior but as long as something out there is automatically causing your heart to close you have more work to do and that that automatic closing will be there at the moment you're dying. It will limit the profound spiritual opportunity that all of a sudden not having a body will offer you at that moment of, of as the spiritual dying process begins in the moments after physical death. So that we're kind of assuming here that people want to be free, as almost all the contemplative religions say, that this these moments preceding and following physical death, are the most opportune moments in an extended lifetime in which to realize who we are, to become enlightened. At the same time, we're not going to wait until we're almost dead, we're not going to wait until the doctor says I have really bad news or the car is spinning out of control or whatever it might happen to be. We're going to begin to do that work, hopefully, right now. My Guru Maharaji said, The best form to worship God is every form. It's not just the one that's easy for you that you like. You're attracted to Buddha, you're attracted to the mother, you're attracted to Christ. There's also forms of God like Shiva and Kali that are very wrathful, and there are forms of God like Donald Trump and police officers and Republicans and Democrats. No matter what side of the aisle you're on, God is showing himself and herself and all these different forms. There's a wonderful story where a devotee of Maharaji came to him and said, my daughter's getting married next month. Will you come to the wedding? And Maharaji said, I will be there. So that in India, as you probably know, w- weddings are a really big deal. They go on for days at a time and there's elephants and bands. a <laughs> whole thing is happening, right? And Maharaji didn't seem to show up at the wedding. So the next time this devotee met Maharaji said, you didn't show up what's you know you said you would be there and maharaji said do you remember partway through the ceremony this raggedy beggar came up to the gate and said can i come in and have some food and you yourself came to the gate and said no no you're not invited that was me you didn't let me in okay so it's nice when god comes in a in a really nice outfit but mother teresa has this wonderful quote about trying to see Christ in his distressing disguise. When you're in Calcutta and somebody's a leper or somebody's a beggar and they're uh, in a very tattered disguise, it's easy to see that just as a disguise. But when we look around this virtual room we're in, people here have pretty good disguises. It really looks like I've got on this Hawaiian shirt and I've got the cute little dog and I'm saying clever things. and. Each one of you has your disguise. And it's much harder when people's lives are together to not get caught in the disguises. So that it takes the practices that we've been talking about for the last few weeks, getting grounded, getting centered, being present in a balanced way so that the mind can calm down to see beyond the concepts that are creating all the disguises. Why don't we start with a meditation right now? We'll bring some of these ideas into the meditation, then we'll have a lot more discussion. Please begin then by looking at your motivation. What brings you to the cushion? What brings you to this group? What is the most important thing in your life? When we turn on the news and we see violence and protest and anger and sadness and death and grief, Do we pull away from that? Do we get lost in it? Does it make us despondent? Or is it possible to be with the suffering that is being so clearly revealed and keep our hearts open? And can that work be what motivates us in our practice. Not just each of us getting a little happier, suffering a bit less, but finding a depth of compassion and devotion that will allow us to remain open as chaos and ignorance swirls about. And can you then invoke that which is beyond all this change, that which is beyond suffering, that which is unborn and does not die, God, higher power, the mother, spirit of truth, in a deeply heartfelt way, reaching out, And asking to be connected to the source of all connection, to the source of love and compassion. And as this trust begins to deepen, allowing thought, emotion, sensation, perception to arise without the need to judge or feel we need to improve, when there is criticism, just notice it and come back to the sense of invocation, the sense of deepening trust. And bringing the sense of trust also into the body by first taking a few grounding breaths. As you breathe out, imagine that you're pushing energy out through the base of the torso into the earth that supports and nourishes. Antidote to fear. Trusting the sense of support, being dependent on she who supports earth elements divine mother trusting this dropping down out of the mind inhabiting the root chakra And in a similar way, dropping down into the lower belly on the out-breath, Bahara, easy natural in-breath, fuller out-breath, dropping down into the lower belly. Letting this then be a brief foundation for opening the heart, breathing into the heart almost as if you had nostrils in the center of your chest, breathing in open-heartedness, love, compassion, gratitude. And as you breathe out, breathe out in all directions to an infinite length above and below, right and left, front and back. The qualities of the open heart are spaciousness, spacious emptiness beyond concept, beyond I-meditating, secondly a connected heart, a heart that's connected to your own true nature, allowing your experience to rise really naturally and meeting it with love and compassion, no matter the content, being much more interested in your relationship than the content itself, a heart that's connected to all other beings, and a heart that's connected to God The one source, the higher power, heart that, that melts. Is it possible with this open-heartedness that we can remember what's been going on in the news without denying the human suffering, but remembering the spaciousness, the connectedness, the warmth that is the nature of our heart, not pushing away the humanity, yet not getting lost in it, Finding this balance between a certain sadness combined with a joyfulness that transcends happiness and sadness, a heart that is so empty of concept that it's full. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. We are that reality. Seeing this, we realize that we are nothing. And being nothing, we are everything. That is all. Being nothing, being everything at the same time can only happen in the open heart. The mind creates the abyss, the heart crosses the abyss. How much can you trust dying into love? not even knowing who you will die into. How deeply can we trust this dying? I'd like to read a couple of quotes about the heart, just take them as part of the meditation. To become the beloved, we first of all have to claim that we are taken. We can desire to become the beloved only when we know we already are the beloved. The first step in spiritual life is full of knowledge with our whole being that we are already have been taken. As Henri Nouwen, Maharaj said, I'm always in communion with you. Imagine that even when we feel most abandoned, most separate, most lost in our concepts, that there's no moment where we're ever disconnected from that level of pure consciousness that we can call the sacred. Richard Rohr said, all spirituality is about what we do with our pain. Rabbi Shefa Gold said, Gratefulness opens me up to receive the flow of blessing and connects me with the source of that flow. And paraphrasing Pirvalayat Khan, Like the mother of the world who carries the pain of the world in her heart, we are each called upon to carry a measure of that pain and to carry it with joy. In the heart there is a joy that transcends happiness, sadness, wellness and illness. And from this place naturally arises a compassionate wish that all other beings might be free from suffering, that they each might find that sense of spaciousness and warmth and connectedness that is the nature of their hearts. We offer freely our own merit with the wish that all beings might find that joyfulness. Coming back to your body, grounded and centered. It really is impossible to open the heart until one comes into direct contact with how suffering is created. We can't heal something until we can be with it directly and intimately, admitting what it feels like to Have a disconnected heart. A heart that isn't spacious but is contracted. A heart that isn't warm but is cool. Coming back into this room, Ram. I think many of us have begun our practice with mindfulness meditation, being aware of your breath, your movement, your mind, your thoughts. But one could also do a practice of being aware of unconditional love. That instead of what is your body doing or what is your mind doing, is there this quality of pure consciousness or love that we can pay attention to, that we can die into, that we can realize our union with in each moment. Very often, for many people, it takes years of working with the mind to stabilize it, deepening mindfulness before we can plunge into the heart in any ongoing way. The last few weeks, we've talked some about until we're grounded and centered enough, the heart will only be open when the environment feels safe enough. Right now, the environment in The world, particularly in the United States, doesn't feel particularly safe for a lot of people. Can we find the foundation in our practice that gives us the courage to remain in the heart even when there is so much suffering and violence all around? And if we're not going to do it, who is? So somebody was bothered by the noise in the background, As I mentioned, we have a hospice dog here who can only eat certain things. And I told my son, could he please feed the dog because I was gonna be doing this and he was making some toast for the hospice dog. If we can only meditate when it's really quiet, then our practice isn't very strong. I learned to meditate partly at San Francisco Zen Center where people were negotiating drug deals on the sidewalk right outside the Zendo window and even in india when i was at the burmese temple there and it was like a really quiet rural place outside of Bodh Gaya where the buddha got enlightened there was a dirt road right outside of the temple and you could hear a an ox pulled cart coming from like quarter of a mile away the the bell was dinging on the ox's neck you could hear it coming and then it was by the temple and then it was going another direction and it seems so disturbing that one that one bell. It's really uh, almost impossible to find the perfect environment. So, I had asked my son to do that, and he tried his best to be quiet. It's not the noise that's disturbing you; it's your reaction to the disturbance. Cancer doesn't cause suffering, but resistance to cancer causes suffering. Noise doesn't cause suffering, but some idea that it should be different. So, today we're going to be talking about qualities of the heart that aren't compassion. We talked about compassion. Compassion is really, in a way, the most important quality, because without it, we're always going to be thrown off by the suffering that's arising in our lives. Just as an example, there's this sociologist, Brene Brown, who has this very popular TED Talk, and her big thing is vulnerability, I guess. And she did a, a study of, what was it, 10,000 people, or and found that of all the people that felt joyfulness in their life, everybody who felt joy did one thing. And I'll give you a clue it was not meditate, because there is a lot of grumpy meditators who are not particularly joyful. That's for sure. But what do you think is the thing that everybody who felt joyfulness did? Uh, acceptance, maybe surrender. How about smiling? <laughs> Everybody that felt joyfulness had a gratitude practice. Uh. (laughs) There's this popular thing of having a gratitude journal, right? Where at the end of the day, you write down three things you're grateful for. But I would ask you to consider the possibility of doing a a moment-to-moment gratitude practice. You're meditating, and there's some noise in the background. Can you be grateful for... What's going on? Or right now, can you be grateful for here we are together? You know, it's not quite the same as being in the same room together where we can touch each other and see each other more clearly than we do in this Zoom environment. But can, can gratitude turn into a more moment-to-moment kind of practice? There's a wonderful teacher named Brother David Stendel And uh, he he says that the only thing you need, the only spiritual practice you need, is gratitude. Just moment-to-moment gratitude. Can you be grateful for this and for this and for this? And in doing that, it opens you to the flow of God's grace. Any place is sacred ground, for it can become a place of encounter with the divine presence. And the other quote he has that I really love is, the root of joy is gratefulness. It is not joy that makes us grateful, but it is gratitude that makes us joyful. Gratitude can be turned into a practice. Gratitude can be something that we cultivate. For me, it's really the gateway to devotion, if you will, or pure loving kindness. I do a lot of Buddhist practice, and I talk about Buddhism a lot, but really my deepest practice is my relationship with God, my relationship with Maharaji, and uh, just t- trying to see God everywhere. The best form to worship God is every form, and just being grateful. Like the fellow who got mad that Maharaji didn't show up at his daughter's wedding. Could it be the fact that that God has shown up in the form of of Donald Trump? That it's it's all it's all the divine, which does not mean that we don't protest and try to bring. Justice to the world. But if we really look at history, who are the people that created the most lasting change? There are people who did it pretty much nonviolently. People like Gandhi and Martin Luther King, Nelson Mandela, Abraham Lincoln. Maybe there was a lot of violence there with Abraham Lincoln, who knows. But he seemed to have a very nonviolent kind of heart. Gratitude. And then the other quality is forgiveness. Forgiveness is a really tricky quality in a lot of ways because there are people who have been deeply, deeply hurt by someone else. People have been abused, sexually abused, physically abused, emotionally abused, who are not even yet at a place where they can forgive the person because even just thinking about that person causes post-traumatic stress. Maybe we have to work gradually in getting to the place of being able to open our hearts to somebody who's caused that degree of, of pain. When Stephen Levine and I were teaching workshops a long time ago, there was a lot of people who said, I really have a hard time with your forgiveness meditations because I, I can't forgive my abuser. So Stephen came up with this notion of if you can't forgive somebody, can you at least wish that they no longer be dominated and motivated by hatred and violence? Can you wish that the person might find some peace? Once again, though, forgiveness is not about excusing what someone's done, but allowing your heart to heal. Can you think about somebody that has caused you pain? Or maybe more accurately, languaging it. Can you think of someone that you have felt pain because of something they've done. Not that they've done it to you, but that's been your reaction. And allow your heart to stay open. As long as there are people out there in the world that as soon as you think of them, your heart closes, you are gonna be at the affect of that person. You are gonna be vulnerable to that symbol, that meme out in the world. So there are three kinds of forgiveness forgiving others, asking forgiveness, and forgiving yourself. Those are the three ways. In a way, it all starts with forgiving ourselves. Can we really forgive ourselves for all the ways that we have been cowardly and narcissistic and arrogant and frightened, and all those ways that those things have happened, all those less than heartfelt moments in our lives? And instead of judging ourselves, Begin to forgive to open our our hearts. And in a way, that is the the fundamental of Christianity, the fundamental message of Christianity is that we're forgiven. And once again, my friend Stephen, he had a very spotty early life. He had been in a mental institution, he'd been in prison, he'd been a heroin addict for a while. He had a lot that he needed to forgive himself for, he felt. So for years, he was doing this practice of saying, Stephen, I forgive you. Stephen, I forgive you. Even though he didn't feel it, he just did it as a practice. I forgive you. Stephen, I forgive you. And finally, one day, he said he was out meditating in the woods outside of Santa Cruz where we lived. And he said, all of a sudden, I felt forgiven. And I felt so naked and different that I immediately wanted to take back the non-forgiveness, but he decided that since he had worked so hard uh, that he would try being forgiven for a while. And I was running the Dying Center in Santa Fe and got a call that there was a woman who was dying. In fact, she had been given two weeks to live about five days before they called me up and she was in the hospital in Santa Fe and she really didn't need to be in the hospital for any medical reason, So the hospital wanted her to get out of the hospital. There was this family situation going on where she had been living with her husband in West Texas, and she hated her husband. She claimed that, that he had, when she would fall down, he would laugh at her. He wouldn't help her up. He was a bad guy. So she wanted, instead of going to be with her husband, to go be with her sibling in Santa Fe, but the husband said, if you do that, I'm going to mess things up for the family financially. There was this conflict. Is she going to go back at the ranch where she didn't want to go? Was she going to stay in Santa Fe? Which would make the husband all mad. So the hospital thought, why don't we let her go and stay with Dale? Because that will be a compromise. So I came and we, we had a long conversation and I came up with the idea, why Why doesn't she stay at her sibling's house in Santa Fe, but her husband can come and visit, have visiting hours, and I will be her her counselor, her dying coach, and I'll come to the house every day. So she'll have all the advantages of being with the husband, being with me, and being with her sibling. Everybody's happy, and they thought that was a great idea. So she had a, a throat cancer that was inoperable. It was strangling her. And now we're at the point where two... A week ago, she was told that she had two weeks to live. So she went to her sibling's house. I uh, came the next day and said, what do you want? She said, I don't want to die. And I said, tell me about your life. And she said, I really hate my husband. He's been this horrible person to me. And I said, what you need to do is forgive your husband. And she literally said, why would I want to do that? after all the things that son of a bitch has done to me. That's her exact words. And I said, well, you want to get better. And as long as you're holding all this hatred, that's all this energy that can't be used in healing. And even if you're going to die, dying with your heart closed like this is going to make it a lot harder. So I would like us to do this guided forgiveness meditation together right now. Let's just say her husband's name was George, which it was not. But I I had her say, George, I forgive you over and over and over again. And she did this with only great reluctance. And I said, okay, so I'd like you twice a day to be doing this forgiving your husband meditation. She said she would do it. And I said, okay, I'll come tomorrow. She said, no, no, I'll call you when I'm ready for you to come back. You don't come until I call you. So three days go by. And there's no phone call. And I'm once again, she was supposed to have only a few days to live at this point. So I called up her sibling's house and I said, uh, how is your sister? And the person on the phone said, you wouldn't believe it. Yesterday, the doctor came. He looked in her throat and he said, you know, I know your tumor as well as the back of my own hand. I've been looking at it for so many years. It's completely gone and she got on a plane and went to Hawaii this morning. And six months later, she was still alive. And then I I lost track of her. I'm not saying that you're gonna create miracles like this every time, but forgiveness is a very, very powerful practice to free our hearts, to let the energy that is our heart just flow. And think about it, she had a tumor in her throat and she had not been telling her husband how she felt about him. Now, I don't think you get cancer because of your personality, but I think that often where you get cancer has some metaphorical connection with your personality structure. I mean, there's, there's some kind of statistic that Catholic nuns have a very, very low incidence of cervical cancer and a very high incidence of ovarian cancer. Cervical cancer has to do with sexuality and ovarian cancer has to do with child breeding babies and very often nuns don't have a lot of issues about sexuality but then at some point in their nunhood they start thinking oh I'm never going to have a baby and it gets very problematic can you tell us the reference the heart crosses into the abyss so Stephen Levine said the mind creates the abyss the heart crosses it and if we go back to those three qualities of the open heart, one of them is spaciousness, which for me is the way I experience the heart. It's but by by spaciousness we mean that there is there's not a lot of concepts, particularly there's not the concept of I. So that we still have an ego structure, but now it's just one thought in the vast sky of mind. So just as a as a metaphor imagine that your heart is as vast as the infinite sky your heart mind is as vast as the infinite sky but because we're identified as separate beings that we we don't really completely believe we're totally spacious we put a window frame around the chunk of sky that we think is me right and if this window frame is small enough and a gray cloud comes into that chunk of sky, a cloud that's, I'm angry or I'm sad or I'm happy. If the cloud is big enough and the window frame is small enough, all you see is gray and you say, I am happy. I am sad. I, I identify with a passing mind state, right? But if you begin to expand the window frame, if the, if the heart becomes more spacious, that same-size cloud can come. But now you see that it's contextualized in the blue background, and you see that it's moving. It's not who you are. It's just something that's passing through. It's this temporary event. So that, like, for instance, in English, we say, I am afraid. Just the way we language things, it's harder not to identify with passing mind-body states. In Spanish, we say, yo tengo miedo, I have fear. In Tibetan, we say, fear is here. So just English itself makes it harder to have that that spaciousness, uh, the spacious quality of heart. So that whenever you find yourself, is it possible when we feel this contractedness to expand the window frame. It doesn't mean that we still can't be with our emotions. It means that we we don't feel we are them, that there's a quality of spaciousness. And the quality of spaciousness allows us to keep feeling the connectedness, that I'm still connected to who I really am beyond all the changing. I'm still connected to who you are. I'm still connected to God, to the so it's the inward, it's the horizontal, and it's the vertical connected to all of that. The Dalai Lama says that in this day and age that the the sangha is becoming the Buddha. It's the community that is the Buddha. It is is not some historical figure. It is not a statue on your altar. But it is us practicing together that is, is the Buddha in this day and age. So... Uh, I'd like to thank you for your practice, and I appreciate your loving support. Thank you all very much. Thank you. Thank you, Cleo. Blessings, thank you.